Hey everybody, Magnus here. Last week I started off the episode just soliciting ideas for alternatives to iTunes. What can I use to download podcasts apart from iTunes, which let's face it, these days sucks. Ian McGregor, who wrote in to say, Hail your excellency Magnus. You mentioned TMPR episode 69, that you are looking for a new podcast client. I recommend the app iCatcher. iCatcher is a lot more customizable and usable than iTunes. For example, you can import audio files into the iCatcher app. This feature is helpful for me because I can keep all of my audiobooks and podcasts in one app. Also, I recommend using the app TuneShell for music instead of iTunes. All I ask is that your majesty considers my suggestion. Signed, your humble servant, Ian McGregor. So I would just like to thank Ian for writing in and uh, giving me that recommendation. And I'm certainly going to experiment with that. And so, But again, I just wanted to uh, thank him publicly, right here, right now, uh, for doing so. So thank you very much, Ian. Your leader appreciates it. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I usually do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But of those three, I usually talk about comics. And this week's going to be no exception to that. But what I haven't talked a whole lot about, as I've done Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, is Green Lantern. And honestly, there's really no deep dark agenda to that, you understand. It's just that the fanboy muse has taken me other places as I've gone through all these episodes. Now, I gave my origin story with uh, Green Lantern back when Joe, Sean, Anthrax, Angle, and I covered Green Lantern Rebirth. In fact, I originally thought about inviting Sean Angle to join in for this show, but if I'm not terribly mistaken, he's already podcasted about these comics before, so it seems kind of illogical to ask him to do it again because he'd be repeating himself but anyway speaking of repeating oneself if you absolutely positively must know how i uh, came about getting introduced to green lantern i would recommend listening to episode number 34 of trennis magnus punches reality because i really don't feel like getting into it here what i will do though is amplify on some of what Sean and I talked about from that show. I mean, yeah. With the benefit of hindsight, I realize now that I totally misunderstood Hal Jordan. I mean, to me, Hal Jordan was just a superpowers figure in my collection. And honestly, not even a very interesting one. At least, not compared to Superman or The Flash. And that'd tend to account for how I never really connected to Hal. When I was really coming of age as a comics reader, it seemed like Hal was perpetually on some fucking spirit quest in search of deeper meaning or some bullshit. And honestly, all I really wanted from superhero comics were lots of fights and shit blowing up. 
That's why I was such an easy mark for Kyle Rayner when he was introduced. Now there was a Green Lantern I could get behind. Because of all that stuff, I just didn't connect very much with Hal Jordan. But in the course of following uh, Kyle Rayner's adventures, I picked up some Hal Jordan issues, beginning with Emerald Dawn and then working my way forward. And honestly, what I eventually had to admit was that I'd kind of sold Hal Jordan short, just a little bit. Not much, but some. When he was written as sort of an action hero, as opposed to fucking David Banner, Hal Jordan could be kind of interesting to read. Nothing special, in my opinion, but honestly, not as bland and forgettable as I originally expected. That doesn't mean I was happy when Jeff Johns started doing all of his stuff to Green Lantern. It's quite the opposite, but I could at least see the merit to it after a while. A few months ago, I checked out the Emerald Dawn miniseries again, and I guess the, really the main reason for that was I just felt like reading some Green Lantern comics and Emerald Dawn was nearby. Now, for those of you who don't know, basically the Emerald Dawn miniseries is to Green Lantern what John Byrne's Man of Steel is to Superman. Basically retells the character's origin story, and at least in Green Lantern's case... I do think this also served as a reboot and kind of an entry point for Green Lantern into the post-crisis DC universe. Such is my understanding. To be totally honest about it, though, I'm really not sure if Emerald Dawn actually did reboot Green Lantern or not. I mean, I assume that it does, because it does introduce several new concepts into continuity, but either way, it's just a really fun story. And honestly, that's probably about as good a segue into the synopses as I could ask for. So this is Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn. The writers are Jim Owsley for issue number one. And then for everything else, Keith Giffen and Gerard Jones. Penciler is M.D. Bright. Inker, uh, inker is Romeo Tangal. Letterer is Albert de Guzman. Colorist is Anthony Tallin. Editor is Andy Helfer. Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn, number one entitled The Sign. A young Hal Jordan and his brother Jack watch their father, Martin, as he tests a plane at Ferris Aircraft. Something goes horribly fucking wrong, though, and Martin's plane crashes in a fiery wreck before Hal's very eyes. Years later, Hal and his friends are having beers at a bar. Hal's rival, Biff, teases him for getting fired from Ferris Aircraft and then being rehired after his mother called to complain, using Martin Jordan's legacy as leverage. <clears throat> Hal took a pay cut and can no longer fly aircraft. As an apparently drunk Hal is taking his friends home, he's preoccupied with his anger at Biff, and he panics when he drives too close to a roadside billboard and crashes his Jeep. Hal ends up in the hospital, but his injuries aren't bad. His friend Andy, however, is seriously fucking hurt. Hal's ex-girlfriend, Carol Ferris, is quite mad at him, as is her father Carl, the owner of Ferris Aircraft particularly because Andy is their star pilot. Back at Ferris Aircraft, Hal's testing a flight simulator, despite the fact that he's not fully recovered from a head injury. Somehow, his simulator crashes through a wall and flies off. While in the air, Hal hears a voice talking about the nature of order and chaos, and a core that is without fear, anger, or corruption. When Hal finally lands, miraculously unharmed, He's in the middle of the desert, and a crashed alien spaceship's in front of him. Hal is forcibly brought inside the ship where he meets Abin Sur, the Green Lantern of Sector 2814. Abin Sur is dying, and he informs Hal that he, Hal, has been chosen to be his, Abin Sur's, successor. Hal says he isn't interested, but the ring flies off Abin Sur's finger and onto Hal's <coughs> as the alien dies. Hal panics and bursts out of the spaceship. When he's several hundred feet in the air... He realizes he's flying. Hal then finds a telephone and calls Carol. She's furious since she thinks he stole the flight simulator, and she tells him that his friend Andy may be paralyzed for life. While flying around, Hal wonders why all this has happened to him. Then, seeing the yellow sign that caused his accident, Hal becomes enraged and bursts through it. This does, unexpectedly, injure him, though. Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn, number two, entitled The Trail. 
Hal Jordan dreams that he's flying in space, being berated by the voice of his father. He becomes agitated and crashes into a huge Green Lantern power battery. When he wakes up, he finds himself in the desert near the yellow sign he'd just crashed through at the end of issue number one. He hitches a ride to the hospital and visits his friend Andy, who'd, who'd become paralyzed as a result of a car crash from while Hal was driving in the last issue. Andy warns that the police know that Hal was drunk when the crash occurred, and when Hal hears people coming towards Andy's room, he flies away. Hal decides that he should conceal his identity with a domino mask. While in the air, he startles a Ferris aircraft pilot and nearly causes him to crash. But at the last minute, Hal uses his ring to help the, plan la the plane land safely. Hal's ex-girlfriend Carol Ferris seems intrigued by his abilities, much to his amusement, but the pilot's enraged. A dejected Hal flies off. On the moon, a yellow alien is searching for Abin Sur. The alien makes his way to Earth and finds Abin Sur's body within his wrecked spacecraft. Realizing that the ring's been given to a new Green Lantern, the alien attempts to pick up its trail. Hal decides it's, it's time to turn himself into the police, and an officer confiscates all of his possessions, including his Green Lantern ring. Suddenly, the yellow alien bursts into the jail, killing many of the officers. Hal rushes out of, a sail, uh, out of a cell, which has been demolished, and grabs his ring. He expects to easily defeat the alien, but the ring seems to have no effect on the alien. Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn number 3, entitled The Ring. While Green Lantern is fighting with this yellow alien, he wonders why his ring seems to have no effect. <clears throat> As the powerful alien becomes more aggressive, Hal's concentration breaks, and his connection to the ring's energy is broken. Enraged, the alien leaves, wondering what happened to the Green Lantern's trail. Hal's confused and depressed, and in an effort to get back to what he knows, he hitchhikes to the, ho to the hospital where his recently paralyzed friend Andy is resting. However, when he arrives, the car is stopped by a police blockade. The police inform Hal that the hospital's been destroyed by the, uh, the yellow alien, with no apparent survivors. When Hal realizes that the hospital's destruction is his own fault, he realizes that Ferris air Aircraft is also in danger. Unfortunately, Ferris Aircraft has also been destroyed, and knowing that the yellow alien is searching for, green, for the Green Lantern, that is what Hal resolves to be. He returns to the crash uh, site of Avansur spacecraft, hoping to find the power battery for his ring. When he discovers a large green lantern and holds the ring to it, he's pulled toward it by a powerful force and finds himself back in his green lantern uniform. Hal, confounded, asks the ring what it's doing to him and is surprised to receive a response. The ring explains that he must charge it using the battery every 24 hours. Hal asks about the yellow alien's origins, and the ring reveals that the alien is known as Legion, and has killed four Green Lanterns, including Abensur. The ring creates a projection of the events leading to Abensur's death, but as soon as it ends, the real le uh, Legion appears and attacks. Realizing that the ring has no effect against the yellow alien, and knowing that he's in a secluded area, Hal decides to use the ship's fission reactors to cause a nuclear blast in an attempt to defeat Legion. Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn, Number four, entitled The Core. In the wake of the nuclear explosion that he caused, Green Lantern is surprised to find that he's still alive. He assumes that his enemy, Legion, must have been vaporized. Realizing his own inexperience, Hal asks his ring to take him to meet another member of the Green Lantern Corps. As he flies past the moon, it appears that Legion has survived, and the villain begins following him. The ring takes Hal to Sector 2813, where he encounters Green Lantern, Tomar Ree. Tomar's ring informs him that Legion has been sighted, and together, they warp to Oa. There, Tomar explains the nature of the Guardians and their struggle to keep order in the cosmos. They meet Salak, who declares that the three must consult the Book of Oa regarding Legion's origins. The book tells the story of the planet Chick-Chick in Sector 407, where overpopulation and conquest led the Guardians to lock the planet within an energy field until their desire to expand was quelled. What a bunch of nice guys, those Guardians. Tomar Ree explains that Hal will have to stay on Oa to train, rather than returning to Earth with his newfound powers. Hal, however, makes a request to appear at his friend Andy's funeral via Green Energy Construct, where he reveals to his brother Jack what's in, what it is that's happened to him. Hal's ex-girlfriend Carol Ferris nearly sees him, but he disappears immediately. 
For the next week on Oa, Hal's rigorously trained by Kilowog, until one morning he wakes up to hear an alarm. Tomar Ree explains that the alarm hasn't sounded in a millennium. Oa has been breached by Legion. Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn, number 5, entitled The Test. Green Lantern and the rest of the Green Lantern Corps are surprised to discover that Legion has survived a nuclear blast back on Earth. Kilowog orders the Corps to head for cover while he distracts the villain. Unfortunately, Legion manages to kill several Corps members. The Corps move underground, hoping to use the planet's bedrock as a weapon against Legion. Salak and Tomari devise a plan to trap their enemy within a sphere of the mineral Oamite. Once again, however, Legion escapes, killing yet another Corpsman. Legion beats his way through uh, Kilowog and Salak into the chamber where the Guardians of the Universe are sleeping. He wakes them, demanding vengeance, and entangling himself in the cables attached to their sleeping pods. Hal Jordan acts quickly, severing the cables and lifting Legion up into the air and carrying him away. Struggling to think of a way to defeat a yellow enemy, Hal realizes that he can cover the, the yellow using Oa's muddy terrain. Once Legion is covered in mud, Hal is able to use his Green Lantern Ring to bring his enemy to its knees. But when Hal seems ready to deliver a killing blow, Legion explains that he's in fact the collective souls of the people of Chick Chick, a race trapped with, within an energy field on their own planet by the Guardians. Hal's not convinced, knowing that Legion had killed his friends back on Earth, but he refuses to kill, to kill for Legion or the Guardians. Hal uses his ring to remove Legion's armor, but an increasingly large creature springs forth and attacks the core. Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn number 6, entitled The Dawn. As Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps struggle to contain the massive, exponentially growing protoplasm that was once Legion, Hal's fear begins to overtake him. Kilowog, Tomari, and the other corpsmen attempt to lift the creature from the planet, only to discover that it's dug itself into the surface of Oa and is using the Guardians of the Universe's power against them. Elsewhere, the Guardians look on, concluding that it serves the Order better that they abandon their planet and preserve themselves. Hal responds with disbelief to their plan, challenging their cowardice and forming a plan to harness the energy within Oa's central power battery. Hal remembers the words of Abin Sur, encouraging him to overcome his fear. He flies directly in, I, into the central power battery and emerges surrounded by green flames. He uses the green en energy to create a cyclone which pulls Legion from Oa's surface and launches it into space. From there, the rest of the Corps contain it and take it back to its home planet of Chick Chick to begin life anew. Perplexed by his actions, the Guardians question Hal, but he retains no memory of them. The Guardians see that Hal is in many ways an appropriate uh, successor to Abin Sur and award him the title of Green Lantern of Sector 2814. However, upon his return to Earth, Hal decides that he must do the right thing and turn himself in for drunk driving. After a time, Hal's released from Gardner A. Broom State Correctional Facility, where he's greeted by, by his brother Jack and Jack's girlfriend Dee. Jack reveals that Carol Ferris was impressed by Hal's show of responsibility for turning himself in and has offered him his old job back. Later, Hal's flying an aircraft when something goes wrong in a parallel to the events which led to his father's death. Rather than use his ring to save himself, Hal endeavors to land the craft on his own and and it appears that he does until it explodes rather suddenly. Fortunately, an intact Hal emerges from the cloud of dust and debris, picks up the ring, and moves on. The end. So, what did I think? Honestly, I seriously fucking enjoy this story. Now, I have to acknowledge that except for a few story elements, this pretty much is a a kind of standard Green Lantern beats the shit out of an alien story. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all gussied up in the context of an origin story where, honestly, Hal has to earn the right to call himself a Green Lantern. And that's not small potatoes either. But at the end of the day, it's another in a long fucking line of Green Lantern beats the shit out of, a out of an alien type of stories. The fact that it's a really good example of that doesn't make it something other than what it is. Now, there is, or was, a considerable amount of controversy coming from the fact that this series showed Hal Jordan as an irresponsible, drunk-driving alcoholic. 
And the truth is, there's really no way to express an opinion about that without offending somebody. So, knowing that, I'm not even going to attempt to tread lightly here. Drunk driving is a real problem. The people who drive under the influence of anything should be punished to the full extent of the law. Period. End of story. That having been said, though, I see portraying Hal Jordan as a drunk driver as an attempt to accomplish two different things. First, Marvel's always said to have relatable characters. Now, mind you, at the same time, in the same breath, they're also said to have flawed characters, too. Good fucking luck reconciling those two. But anyway, one of, their more, one of their more famous characters is Iron Man, who's known to be an alcoholic. Now, if you object to Hal Jordan being an alcoholic, don't you also kind of have to object to Iron Man being one? And guys, that's not, a, that, that's not a rhetorical question. If you object to one, the other, or both being an alcoholic, let me know. Send me an email. Trentus Magnus at gmail.com. T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Send me an email let me know about that. The other objective, though, for portraying Hal as an alcoholic is to give his character somewhere to go. He starts off as a self-pitying, irresponsible brat who honestly just blames everybody and everything else except himself for his problems. By the end of the story, though, he makes the commitment to grow up and behave more maturely. He could use his ring to break himself out of jail, but he serves his time like a man. He takes his punishment because he knows he deserves it. No more excuses. He accepts his fate and moves on with life. And this doesn't go unnoticed by the people in his life. For the first time ever, Hal's acting like a responsible adult. By the sixth issue of this miniseries, he doesn't need Mommy to tell that meanie head Carol Ferris not to fire him. He earns his job back on his own merits. Now, in my opinion, this relates to things that Sean and I talked about back in the Rebirth episode, but the reason this works for me is because Hal devoted himself to becoming the best Green Lantern he possibly could. The Ring didn't make a mistake by choosing him. The Ring found Hal as an irresponsible brat. By the end of Emerald Donna's story, Hal is well on his way to becoming a real adult. And for the moment, just forget about the superhero angle of it. He's becoming an adult, a grown-up, a mature adult with mature responsibilities and mature reactions to things that are his fault. He cleans up his own messes. That's worth something. By the time the ongoing series started, though, Hal worked so hard in life and carried so many burdens with him that it was starting to take a physical toll on him. For example, and this, again, this relates to things that Sean and I talked about in the Rebirth episode. But for example, his burdens had prematurely aged him. He'd aged beyond his years with those gray temples. Now, of course, Jeff Johns wants us to believe that his hair turned partly gray because of Parallax's influence, but come on. Even now, I feel like that's a cop-out. I mean, look, I'm one of those people who believes that character development comes from so many things. And I always really liked the concept that Hal had been through so much and worked so hard that all of his uh, turmoil and, and hard work and everything else had just taken a toll on him to where his temples went gray a lot earlier than they should have. But, uh, whatever, there's really no sense digging that all up again. My point is that I personally didn't need some kind of a retarded fucking explanation for why Hal's hair turned partly gray. I mean, I don't get why... That couldn't have just been a mark of how seriously Hal took his responsibilities as Green Lantern. But obviously Jeff Johns didn't care what I think. Besides, Jeff Johns did what I consider to be the best and probably the definitive run on Hal Jordan and created concepts that people are going to mine for years. 
So obviously, Jeff Johns must have done something right, you know? So what I'm saying here is that I may pick on Jeff Johns when it comes to the big icons like Batman and Superman, but I won't say a word against him when it comes to Green Lantern. He's the Green Lantern writer of his generation. There's just no question about it, in my opinion. But anyway. Another thing that works for me about Hal Jordan is his family. For whatever reason, most superheroes tend to be only children. I don't know why. I know some only children, but most of my friends tend to have siblings. It seems like a way disproportionate number of superheroes and even supervillains are only children. It just doesn't make sense to me. But Hal Jordan has brothers. And hey, I have brothers. I know what that relationship is like. There are days where you love your brothers and you take a bullet for any one of them. But then there are days where all you want to do is kill every fucking one of them. And that's basically the type of relationship Hal has with his brothers. So first, the fact that he even has brothers works for me on a lot of levels. But second, the fact that they're real characters and have real conflicts with each other, that adds up for me. Because oftentimes, that is how brothers relate to each other. Now, as to the art, I have to say, and I say this with all due respect, that M.D. Bright just never did it for me. I'm not saying he's a bad artist. Hell, it's actually totally the opposite. I, I think he's a good artist. I was just never fanatical about M.D. Bright's work. Every single page is arranged coherently, and he's got a logical flow to his, to his storytelling, and just all around, I think M.D. Bright is an asset to this story. His characters are in, uh, easily distinguishable from one another, but he never has to do caricature type of art to separate one character from another. M.D. Bright does a hell of a lot of things very well, but to me, he's more of a workhorse type of artist. He'll never be remembered, at least not by me, for having the most dynamic and engaging line style in the history of the comic book medium. M.D. Bright basically just shows up, creates absurdly well-crafted illustrations, and always enhances the story that's being told. He just doesn't call very much attention to himself in the process. And if I have a criticism of M.D. Bright as an artist, that's basically it right there. To make a comparison, Ed McGinnis comic books look like they're drawn by Ed McGinnis. He has a very flashy and almost manga art style. He's sort of the Michael Bay of comics in that he draws big, loud, and flashy superhero stories. And I am not criticizing Ed McGinnis for that either. There's, that is a great fucking way to tell superhero stories if you ask me. I'm just saying that you never have to look at the credits when Ed McGinnis draws the comic. You know it's an Ed McGinnis book the second you pick it up. And to tie it back to M.D. Bright, the same really can't be said for him. His line style just isn't designed to be flashy and all, look at me, look at me. He's got this simple line, and he uses that to tell very well-crafted, very meticulously thought-out and well-organized stories. So... I'm not bashing on M.D. Bright. I'm just saying I don't really connect to the boner that some people have for his work. And I'm also not bashing on Ed McGinnis either. I only mentioned him kind of as an analogy to M.D. Bright's style. So if you take nothing else away from this whole fucking tangent, know that I have nothing but respect and admiration for both Ed McGinnis and M.D. Bright. Okay? Anyway. Now... The obvious comparison to make in any discussion of Emerald Dawn is to Green Lantern's Secret Origin, written by Jeff Johns. And I guess some people seem to think that appreciating one means you can't appreciate the other. It's either or. You apparently can't like them both. Now, obviously I do like them both. And if you like them both, man, kudos to you. But I gotta tell you though, if I was stuck on a desert island and could only have <clears throat> a copy of either 
Emerald Dawn or Secret Origin? I choose Secret Origin. The reason for that is because Jeff Johns went into Secret Origin with a plan. He knew what story he wanted to tell and how best to go about telling it. A metric fuckton of cool stuff spun out of Jeff Johns' run on Green Lantern, much of which was planted in Secret Origin. And like I said before, writers and artists are going to be plumbing the depths of Jeff Johns' new ideas and concept for years to come. Years. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that Jeff Johns is the guy who got me off the bench and transformed me into, or rather from, a Kyle Rayner fan into a Green Lantern fan. And if you think about it, there can be a difference between those two. Not necessarily, but possibly. Now, that's not to denigrate Emerald Dawn. I love Emerald Dawn, both for its serving as Hal Jordan's gateway into the post-crisis DCU, and honestly, just no bullshit, just for being a damned fun story. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that Emerald Dawn was the kick in the ass that Hal Jordan needed as a character at the time when he needed it most. Plus, it gave readers a new angle on Hal Jordan. It, it, it gave him real character, which I maintain was largely missing from his publication history up to that point. It gave M.D. Bright an opportunity uh, to draw shitloads of battle scenes, and in general, it gave the Green Lantern mythos a desperately needed facelift. To put it another way, nothing, 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 nothing. about Emerald Dawn is a sin. So, I think that's that for now. I'm going to take a break and be right back after a word from a bunch of people who aren't even sponsoring this podcast. Wow, I'm really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just so perfect. <sighs> Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that. Good afternoon. Gah! Where did you come from and who the heck are you? My name is Dufo de Manzo. And where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse. Uh, oh, okay. What is it? I have listened to your podcasts, and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so... You will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it. Oh, that sounds great. What do I need to do? You will know when the time is right. Until then, I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. Uh, oh, okay. Cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll catch you all next week. Bravo. Bravo. God! How, how the hell did you find me, and how did you get in my house? Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me. Uh, but you never said what you wanted from me. That is true. So let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, twotruefreaks.com. And I am gathering up podcasts such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks network, and in return... Our debt will be settled. Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt? Do you accept my offer? Uh, sure. 
I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh. Okay. Well, does it mean that I'll get some cannoli? Of course. The Demanzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys every Friday at 2TrueFreaks.com. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. He joined the crusade. He helped rule the night. He fought for justice. He wore short pants. Okay, so Robin and Noise have the best fashion sense. But there's no way that he should be ignored, ridiculed, or even derided. He's been an important part of Batman's history for nearly 75 years. And that's why I've decided to give him his due in taking flight. Presented by the Batman Universe, Taking Flight is a podcast dedicated to all incarnations of the Boy Wonder. And every episode, I take a look at the adventures of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, Damian Wayne, and all the others who have worn the red, green, and gold at the side of the Cape Crusader. New episodes appear every two weeks at the Batman Universe, which can be found at thebatmanuniverse.net. So join me, Tom Panneries, as I put the spotlight on the greatest sidekick in comicdom. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback to go through here. First up, this is an actually only up because I seem to take forever when I plow through these, so I'm just going to go. I'm just going to handle this one all by itself. This is an email I received from my old friend, Fanboyimus Prime, dated April the 23rd, entitled "Here We Go Again." Prime writes, "Greetings, Trentus." Kid Eternity is a book I've never read. Hell, the character is one I know best from More Drew Hunting Him Down in the first issue of JSA. Grant Morrison's limited series is one I never had touched. <clears throat> Let me just put your email on pause here and say, um, guys, the uh, context for this is that in my Animal Man episode, 
for the 39th anniversary retrospective extravaganza spectacular episode. Basically, I say that I originally was supposed to talk about uh, Kid Eternity in that episode. But that book was such a weird, fucked up, drugged out, incomprehensible freaking mess that I just gave up. All right. I just I, I couldn't handle it, you know. And yeah, I realize that, you know, Grant Morrison in general and that miniseries in particular are both, you know, lauded for, you know, how awesome they are and just how, you know, freaking cool and everything that miniseries was. And honestly, I do respect Grant Morrison as a writer, but dude, I really don't see what the hype's about whenever he does weird, trippy, crazy stuff like that. I just, I don't get it. And Honestly, I've got a sneaking suspicion that most of his fans don't get it either, but they like pretending they do. And so, anyway, I'll spare you that. But anyway, so that is really the context of uh, the Kid Eternity remark. But to bring it back into uh, Fanboy Miss Prime's email, he writes, Animal Man is another character who I don't have much connection to either. So, Animal Man wants to join the Justice League. In the era, the big guns are literally off the table as Green Lantern got uh, used as it was the same editor as Justice League at the time, and the Batman editor felt sorry for the League editor, so that's why Batman showed up. And I'm not making this up either, as it, as it was in the foreword for the Justice League uh, trade in the opening issues before uh, becoming JLI. So, Buddy has not exactly got much trouble getting into that League. Hell, the Detroit era had even less standards. I mean, only two of the four new members survived the experience, and Vixen sees more use in the various cartoons than she has in the comics. Which is kind of weird, but I do like the character. It's kind of funny, too, because she actually popped up in an episode of Lois and Clark, since you mentioned it. But anyway, get back into your email, though. Ouch, on the ripping off of one of Animal Man's arms. And supposedly people asked in the letters page if that removed arm grew into a second animal man says a lot when that's not even the close that that's not even close to the weirdest thing they could ask in a letters page and uh dude if there's a story here that you know about well obviously i don't so lay it on me dude what else did they ask for in that letters page that was weirder than that because that's pretty freaking weird anyway uh to get back into it though and wow, sounds like Star Labs is going to make that stuff that turned Gar Logan into Beast Boy look like the bacteria they used to make yogurt. Very probably. Oh, the mindfuck for Animal Man comes far later, Trennis. Morrison's end of his run is where the crazy stuff comes into play. Animal Man has this series, The Last Days of Animal Man, written by Jerry Conway, and his new 52 reboot as his claims to having a title. The Morrison, uh, the book Morrison started, and his reboot title are pretty much the, uh, the most we've seen of Buddy. On Michael Bailey and his fame, well, isn't he on half the, the comics podcasts on the internet, or was a part of them at one point? And I'm going to put your email on pause and say, yeah, probably. Honestly, you know, they call him the Kevin Bacon of podcasting, and there's, honestly, there's a very good reason for that. But, you know... Let's, I think of it like this. J. David Weeder is the Conway Twitty of, of uh, podcasting, and Dave assures me that I am the Johnny Cash of podcasting. So there's that. Get back into Prime's email, though. He writes, On Batman and Robin, I still hold it was okay. Not great, but not terrible either. Just my take. And that's where uh, Prime's email ends and say, you know, dude, I realize, you know, my view of it actually is this. I think the tide is actually starting to turn when it comes to uh, Batman and Robin. I think people are looking back at that movie now, and I think it would be a mistake to say that they love it because I don't know if fandom at large will ever get comfortable with that. But I do think people are taking a look at that now, and they're maybe reaching different conclusions. And I kind of have to credit, of all things, the Chris Nolan Batman movies for that. I think those movies got so dark and so just off the rails at various points 
that people kind of can't help but look back at a fun uh, superhero movie like uh, Batman and Robin and think, you know what? That was better than we gave it credit for. I think part of the a huge part of the backlash against uh, Batman and Robin, really it came down to the fact that Batman fans more than anybody I, any other fan group I've ever I've ever known are desperate for some kind of vindication, right? And there's never enough. They always want more, more and more and more and more. And especially back in the 90s, I can kind of see their point of view because you know, even then, you know, people tend to want to forget this, but even back in the 90s, it was still pretty common for people to think Batman and envision Adam West. And I think there's a degree to which they're never going to completely live that. In fact, I don't think comics fans are really going to ever totally live that down. But at the same time, really, it's ultimately Batman fans that are, you know, uh, turning in the wind on that one. And on that basis, I can kind of see where Batman and Robin is a little bit of an albatross for them because they never wanted this. That is, at least to some of them, the total opposite of what Batman is intended to be. And then here comes Batman and Robin, which... I don't, I, see, I feel com- uncomfortable calling Batman and Robin a tribute to the 1960s, uh, you know, the uh, Adam West show. I just don't really see it that way but at the same time you can't really ignore the, its influence either so anyway yeah and I think honestly that's where the backlash first started but I think we're at a point now where people are just so just sick to death of the uber dark Batman that a, that a f- more fun and lighthearted Batman is honestly it's just not as main uh, it, it's just not as outside of the mainstream as it used to be and the thing is if nothing else, the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises individually earned over a billion dollars at the box office. And I think between the two of them, it's something like two and a half billion or close to it worldwide, like between the two of them. And so I think that there's a little bit more now softening of the palette when it comes to uh, stuff like uh, Batman and Robin, that it's not quite the albatross for them now that it was back in, say, 1999, 2000, 2001, around there, right? And I think that's been part of the, you know, a big part of the driving force behind people maybe giving Batman and Robin a little bit of a second chance. Now, is everything about Batman and Robin perfect? No. Honestly, those ice puns that Arnold Schwarzenegger is forced to make. They really do wear out their welcome after a while, but, you know, dude, at the same time, I would, it's just, it's strange to think that I'm actually at a time and a place in my fandom of Batman, or what's left of it, thanks to his fucking fans, that I'm kind of at a time and place in my Batman fandom where I'm willing to overlook that. To me, that seems like the lesser evil now, you know? And that's just, that's where I am with it, you know? And... Anyway, so that's that's just how I feel. So, actually, and you know what? I'm kind of running a little bit short on this section, so I think I can actually move on to the next one. The next email that I've gotten uh, in uh, the hopper here, which is also from, say it with me, Fanboy Miss Prime. And this is, uh, this is dated May the 6th, entitled Genetic Engineering and Singing and Giant Robots. Lots of giant robots. Fanboy Miss Prime writes, Greetings, Magnus. Yep, another combo ep feedback. Or sorry, combo feedback ep. First, uh, first up, something tells me that Gundam Seed and Gattaca having genetic engineering are the only two things they share in common. I know about Gundam Seed as I wanted a Gundam universe to light on fire for a Transformers fanfic, and it kind of evolved into, I found the series was alright. Though it seems I missed watching much of the follow-up series where the entire thing went to crap. And on this, I'm just going to have to say, I'm just putting your email on pause here, and and I'm just going to say, 
Dude, I'm going to take your word for it. I've never really been uh, all that knowledgeable of or interested in Gundam. So, dude, I'm just going to take your word for it on that. If you say it's crap, or at least if you've heard it's crap, good enough for me. So, get back into your email, though. Not sure if you'd, uh, if you'd want to see what happens when I take a throw-everything-we-can star map for an official Transformers product and have fun with some unexpected Transformers and have the massive cabals in the Cosmic Era, as that Gundam universe is called, find their plans got rear-ended by a tank. I kind of enjoy having the Transformers, uh, Transformers Civil War upset and dramatically change the plans of hidden cabals and giant robot animes. Also helps, said animes could use the super fuel that is Energon for the earthbound giant robots. I'm just going to put the whole thing back on pause and say, yep, dude, i right there with you. I'm not a Transformers junkie either, but hey, dude, you go for it, right? It's all you. I just, at this point, I think I'm kind of along for the ride now. But anyway, to get back in the email, it says... The other, uh, the other time I've done that involved Neon, Genes uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. If you're aware of that series, and I'm not, yeah, my primary thought for a crossover with that was, what is the biggest, most awesome and noble hero I can find to save that place? And Optimus Prime was at the top of that list. Plus, given all the retellings and different takes of the Transformers having the Ark and Nemesis finding a parking space in the present day of Neon Genesis Evangelion, wasn't hard. As for music, I have very odd tastes and got the theme song to Brave uh, Command Dagwon, D-A-G-W-O-N, Dagwon, I guess, playing as I write this. Man, I love that song. Can't understand a word of it as I don't speak Japanese, but I just like it. Brave Command Dagwon of the various Brave series are basically the cousins of Transformers. Takara had them created, and while they're more traditional than the Transformers, there is a sense that they could be made to fit with them. That, and I got some of the various heroes and villains of those series and plastered them with the reproduction Autobot and Decepticon symbols. They fit in pretty well amongst the others. Hell, I even repainted one of the Resident Evil creatures they had so it could transform in shape that I found for cheap and plastered him with some Decepticon symbols. Yeah, I've done some pretty weird things to action figures. Customized dozens of G.I. Joes and my god have I had fun doing so. Other than when the paint was runny and man, that was a pain in the butt. I also have taken pictures of my G.I. Joes in action, and that's also a lot of fun to do. Yeah, I pretty much ran off in the other directions, uh, it, or rather in other directions, than the two episodes were, and into my fan fiction, kit bashing, and photogra uh, photographic projects. It was what I was in the mood to talk about, and still less weird than the Rock Lords. I will simply smile politely and agree. Seriously, giant robots turning into rocks... Who was on what, thinking that was a good idea? Signed, Fanboy MS Prime. And dude, your question is, a, or rather your answer, your guess is as good as anybody's. I very honestly have no idea. But uh, yeah, that just sounds boring. Wow, it's like robots who can transform into rocks. Who gives a shit? But you know what? From what I hear, that iteration of, I think that was Transformers. Actually, now I'm kind of wondering, was that Transformers? I seem to think that was an era of Transformers, but maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, it sounded like Transformers to me. Anyway, but whoever thought that ro giant robots turning into rocks, you know, that's what the kiddies are into these days. Yeah, that guy deserves to be in prison or something. I don't know. So, yeah, that that, that whole thing is just kind of odd. So... Yeah, I think that's basically it for, for this email, though. So, anyway, I just want to thank you, Fanboy Miss Prime, for uh, taking the time to write in. And for any of the rest of you listening to this, by all means, I encourage you, feel free to write me as, uh, uh, feel free to write me, too. You can uh, reach me at trennismagnus at gmail.com, where, unless you specify otherwise, your feedback will be read on mic. You can also file iTunes reviews for me at... Uh, by searching for the feed called Two True Freaks Presents Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. So go ahead and file a review there, and all of those are going to be read on mic, so, you know, have at it. And um, I think that's pretty much it uh, for this week. 
Next week, I'm going to be joined by uh, podcasting extraordinaire, Mr. Tom Panarese, the host of Pop Culture Affidavit, a just freaking awesome podcast. And if you're not listening to that, you freaking should be. He also does a podcast called In Country, which is all about uh, the Marvel comic book series called The Nom. And then finally, there's Taking Flight, which is uh, basically it's all about uh, Dick Grayson. It's sort of a Dick Grayson um, podcast. I guess you could say it's, um, I don't know, from Circus to Bloodhaven? I don't know. Anyway, but uh, so, yeah, those are his three. Pop Culture Affidavit, the, um, the one about the nom, uh, In Country. So there's Pop Culture Affidavit, In Country, and uh, Taking Flight. All of those are done by Tom Panarese, and they're all awesome. And I'm going to be joined by uh, Tom next week so that we can talk about absolutely nothing. It's going to be just a shoot-the-shit episode, me and Tom hanging out. And that's pretty much what we're going to be talking about. And in fact, I seriously doubt I'll have a chance for... uh, any kind of uh, listener feedback next week. So that's basically that. But anyway, I uh, got Tom. Uh, he's going to show up, join uh, join me, just hang out. We're going to uh, just talk about whatever comes to mind. I think that's pretty much it. So uh, see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.